What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. It is April 22nd. We are continuing to roll through in the second half of the college baseball season. And we have a new top 25 over at BaseballAmerica.com. It is still topped by UCLA. And Stanford comes in at number two. We have a few changes in the top 25 uh, following another big weekend of college baseball highlighted by Arkansas's sweep of Mississippi State and uh, Texas Tech beating Baylor in a big, big 12 series. Uh, But we will get to all of that as, as, uh, as the show continues here. First, though, I want to bring in Dave Serrano and Joe Healy joining me again on the Baseball America College podcast. How's it going, guys? Great to be back, Teddy. Yeah, happy to be here, Teddy. Excited to get uh, to it. Absolutely. So we can uh, we can get right into it with the, the top 25 this week. Again, like I mentioned, UCLA remains number one. Stanford still number two. We have Georgia, Oregon State, and Vanderbilt rounding out your top five. Somewhat of a familiar top five. Those teams have been at or around it pretty much uh, the last month or so. And then Arkansas, like I mentioned, on the heels of a sweep of Mississippi State, climbs to number six. The Hogs are leading the SEC West, and they are now up to their highest ranking in the top 25 this season at six. Louisville, Santa Barbara, Hanging Tough at seven and eight. Uh, Then Mississippi State at nine, and Texas A&M rounds out your top 10. We have three new teams this week. Tennessee comes in at 21, Oklahoma State at 22. They are your Big 12 leaders. And Indiana checks in at number 25. It is the Hoosiers' first appearance this season in the top 25. We are going to start, though, back in the SEC with Arkansas and Mississippi State. Now, Arkansas came into this weekend uh, trailing Mississippi State in the standings. They leave Baum with first place. Uh, or in first place, and the Hogs really had a pretty impressive weekend in all phases of the game. Isaiah Campbell got it started on Thursday night with a, another excellent start, and Arkansas wins a, a pretty tight game, pretty well-pitched game. Uh, Ethan Small and Isaiah Campbell going at it in that one, and Arkansas comes away with a 5-3 win. And then their offense really got it going the next two days. They won 12-5 to and then finished the sweep with a 10-2 victory on Saturday. They got good pitching throughout the weekend, uh, bookended by Campbell and Connor Noland in the rotation. And obviously the bats really got going the last couple days, putting up 22 runs, 
over the final two days, Casey Martin hit a grand slam. Uh, they, they really got some nice contributions from up and down the lineup. Uh, you know, it's uh, the lineup is showing a little more depth maybe than than I realized that it would have coming into the year. And uh, Dave Van Horn also told me it's a little deeper right now than than he had realized it, it might be at the start of the year. So that is a very positive sign for Arkansas. And you know, the Hogs, like I mentioned, into first place just ahead of Texas A&M, which went two and one. At South Carolina, that was just enough for for Arkansas to to edge ahead of the Aggies. They will play at the end of the season in a series that uh, will have some serious implications on the title race, you would have to assume, given the way both of those two teams are playing right now. But when we look at this, this Arkansas team, like I mentioned, they are up to six in the top 25. They're fifth in the RPI. Right now, they're they're sitting at 30 and 10 overall, looking very much like they're in line for a, a top eight seed again this year, and that would be big for them because they're 21 and four at Bomb Stadium. Just very difficult to beat there, as they always are, but but especially this season again. What do you guys see as Arkansas's ceiling uh, going forward this year? Well, I'll start out. Uh... I've never been down on Arkansas. I think in our early talks, I, I thought, you know, they were a team that kind of was getting looked past because the fact, you know, they were they were an out away from being last year's national champion. And they returned some good pieces. I think the key to where their success is coming from now, especially this past weekend, is they've kind of settled into their pitching. And, you know, Isaiah Campbell has week in and week out gone out and done a good job. But it's been the rest of the weekend series uh, pitching that hasn't performed consistently. I think they got a good start in the Saturday start at a freshman, uh, Patrick Wicklander. And then, uh, as you said, Connor Nolan threw fabulous on Sunday. And I think that consistency is helping them. But I, you had mentioned this in your, in your uh, roundup, roundup about them. It's Casey Martin, for me, that's allowing their lineup to be a little bit, have more depth. He started out the season a little slow. He has worked on a new approach. He's trying to be more driving balls up to the middle. And I think it's allowed him to get back into swinging the bat well, which I think we all know is a big piece to the lineup. They have a lot of other, they have some other pieces in that lineup too, but I think with Casey Martin can continue to stay hot and swing the bat, I think it's only going to make their lineup work well. And I, I think they're a scary team, especially if they become uh, a national eight seed, because as we all know, it's a very tough place to play, to go into bomb stadium. And they've notoriously have had success in regional play and postseason play when they're at home. So I think, you know, they have a lot of work to still do in the SEC, but I think if they continue to get that pitching and, and Casey Martin continues to stay hot, um, the Razorbacks are definitely a team that a lot of people are going to have to deal with as we get later into the season. In terms of the postseason race situation, I mean, all their top-line goals are, are right there in front of them. They could, obviously, they're in position now to where they could win the SEC regular season title. They could be a, a top-eight seed uh, in the postseason. All that is is right in front of them, and and. Because of that, you have to consider them on the, at least the, the 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 medium list, maybe not the short list, but the medium list of national title contenders. And if you told me in July that hey, you know, if I were to, uh, you know, just live under a rock for the next few months, and you told me in July, hey, Arkansas won the national title, I'd believe you. I wouldn't have a whole lot of trouble believing that because certainly offensively they're they're among the very best, and um, you know they've been able to patch the pitching together uh, to get it done more often than not. That's why they're here. 
I, I think they're a little bit of a cut below teams like UCLA, Stanford, I would even say Georgia. Um, and, and a big reason for that is, is the, the, Dave talked about the pitching kind of coming together and it, and it has in spurts like this past weekend was a great example of that. But, uh, you know, how much do we trust that to kind of continue? I mean, Wicklander has been good in spots. Connor Nolan's been a little bit up and down. I mean, that uh, start this past weekend was one of his very best, but he's, he's also had starts where he wasn't able to get out of the early innings and uh, they've got a back in the bullpen figured out with, with Matt Cronin, obviously he's he's about as good as it gets from as far as a closer goes. But you know some of the guys that were the bridge guys like a Cody Scroggins, uh, once he was out of the rotation, or Cole Ramage have just kind of been okay, and their team ERA is up over four. Um, so there's a little bit of concern from from my standpoint about what happens if this team gets a little bit behind the eight ball pitching wise in the postseason, um, and if they're going to be able to string enough outs together to uh, to get it done. I would kind of compare them in terms of where I have them in the pecking order, kind of similar to Oregon State, but the inverse. Oregon State is, you know, the pitching is, is even with Kevin Abel out, the pitching has really not been an issue. It's been offensively, and, it, they, you know, it's been Adley Rutschman and then kind of figuring it out game by game, and you just wonder how long they can kind of do that because they keep getting it done, and you kind of wonder how it's, how it's happening. It's a similar thing with Arkansas pitching. They just find the outs week after week, but when you get into the postseason where every team you're playing is good, and, you know, you're getting everyone's best shot. I, I just wonder if they're going to have enough to quite get it done at the national title level. Uh, can they win the SEC? Yes. You know, can they be a top eight? Yes. Can they get to Omaha? Sure. Um, but I, I just think there's a few teams ahead of them that I would put on that list of national title contenders at this point. I think that's a good point about their pitching staff. Right now, Isaiah Campbell is lights out, and that is huge. And then behind them, they're throwing two freshmen in Wicklander and Nolan. And... You know, I think that, you know, Nolan maybe found something this week. It was just a week ago that he was seen getting two outs and getting shelled at Vanderbilt and uh, getting pulled in the first inning because he didn't cover first base um, after about 15 pitches. So, you know, that it, th there are ups and downs with that. And and I, I think Connor Nolan at his best is is certainly capable, but... Uh, there are also going to be freshman moments, and then there's just the matter of, you know, how 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 do they look later in the year when they have more innings on them than they've ever really had before? And so th those are open questions. I think that, you know, they know at Arkansas that they need to find a little more depth. Uh, Scroggins right now is is banged up. They got to get him healthy. Um, They've got to get Ramage going. Cole Ramage has not been as, as good as, as they'd hope him to be. And, uh, you know, he's one of the key setup pieces. And uh, Jacob Kostyshak was out for a few weeks. He's back now, but it wasn't quite as good of a look this, this weekend. He needs to, you know, shake some of that rust off. And if they can get Scroggins back, Kostyshak and Ramage going, that really helps everything because at that point, um, you know, if Wicklander or Nolan slips up a little bit, they have options behind them. But right now, they need to find some more depth. Dave Van Horn knows they need to find some more depth. Um, and they need to find it a, a little bit. They need to find it in a hurry. They have a five-game week this week. And so they're, uh, maybe they can find something this week uh, with Northwestern State in town for a couple games. But, you know, right now, the top-line pieces are really good. And, you know, like Dave mentioned, Casey Martin rolling right now. Uh, is, a, is a huge bit for that offense. He'd been slumping for a while uh, after a pretty nice start to the season, but he had 
he put together a big weekend. And, you know, when when Martin's going there, um, you know, to the tune of 11 for 23, like he was this weekend, you know, that that helps the lineup, which at the top end is 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 pretty good. Uh, you know, if you have Martin going in the two hole uh, and then you still have guys like Dom Fletcher and Heston Kerstad and, and Matt Goodhart, you know, that's that starts to look really dangerous. And then at the in the bottom third of the lineup, Arkansas got some nice contributions this weekend from guys like Jacob Nesbitt and Casey Opitz. So it's there. The the top line, I guess this is kind of where I've been with Arkansas all along. Just maybe there are more top line pieces than I thought. They have stars. There, there's no doubt about that. The depth is a bit of a question. I think now, though, I've seen enough pieces around the biggest stars that I feel good about where Arkansas is. And then you look at what they've accomplished to this date and what their resume looks like and the fact that they're in all likelihood lining themselves up to be a top eight seed. And I feel good about this team getting to Omaha. Then what happens once you get there? You know, obviously that that'll be difficult, but I think uh, right now they've positioned themselves very well for a return. And then we'll see what happens once you get into those series. But uh, you know, right now, coming off of a, a loud weekend against Mississippi State, Arkansas looking very good. Meanwhile, Mississippi State not looking as good right now. They got beat pretty soundly the last two days, like we mentioned. And after Ethan Small, they have some questions on the pitching staff right now. JT Ginn has not been the same for the last few weeks. Uh, and ultimately, Mississippi State's offense wasn't able to, to overcome you know, Arkansas's offense, they weren't able to outslug them. This is the start of a really tough month for Mississippi State. The next three weeks are home against Georgia, at AM, and then at Ole Miss. Is there any cause for concern right now? And what do they need to do to get out of this rut or to, to make sure this doesn't become, this weekend doesn't, doesn't carry over into that very tough stretch of games still to come? Oh, I think there's definitely a cause of concern, Teddy, just based off of how they've played as, as late, especially this weekend. And then, obviously, welcome to the SEC. I mean, that's what it serves you. I mean, there's no there's no let-up. I mean, the league doesn't feel sorry for you when you're not playing well. You still have to play the schedule, and uh, I've lived that. So um, there, there is some cause for some concern. The TJ Ginn situation is concerning. Uh, he has not pitched well of late, and I think that was the guy they were really leaning on after – after uh, Ethan Small, who has been pretty good, and he was pretty good in that game against Arkansas, just kind of got away from them a little bit. But uh, they're going to have to figure out their pitching situation. We had talked about that before. Their their uh, third starter has always been in question throughout this year. Their bats have slowed down a little bit, so I, I think there is some uh, cause for concern in Starkville right now, especially with what they have in front of them. And they're going to have to get the the ship righted immediately, or they're or they're going to fall farther down in the standings. So I'm going to do one of those things, you know, how they say when you're, um, you know, when, you, when you're having a difficult conversation with someone to sometimes you give them the compliment criticism compliment sandwich. <laughs> like that's kind of what I'm going to go with here. So strangely, you know, they've got Georgia coming up this weekend, which looks real bad uh, as a matchup considering how good Georgia is. But I think strangely it's not a terrible matchup for Mississippi State just because Georgia's offense is not uh, relative to the, some of the other teams in the SEC, such as Arkansas, Georgia's offense is not going to be one that's going to wear you out as much. Now they can; they've got pieces. I'm not suggesting they don't, but it's not Arkansas's offense in terms, or even Mississippi State's own offense in terms of the depth they have there. So, I think it might be a decent series for Mississippi State to kind of 
um, right the ship at least on the pitching side of things. Now, are they going to pitch well enough to win the series? I don't know. That remains to be seen. But it's kind of strangely a decent matchup considering how good Georgia is overall for Mississippi State to get right a little bit there. But there is concerns. This is my criticism here. Is that in, This is the meat of the sandwich right here. It, it, the, the bullpen in particular has started to slip a little bit. And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, Small and Ginn were just so consistent the first six, seven weeks of the season. And so the bullpen was really kind of condensed to the point where you had everyone was in their little niche role and they were, you know, had a, had a specific, you know, number of outs they were looking for this guy to get, or, you know, they were using, uh, you know, Cole Gordon strictly for ninth innings and, you know, Tristan Barlow would come in and get a specific lefty out or what have you. Um, and because they've been stretched a little thinner, they haven't really been able to do that as much. There hasn't been as much of a schedule in the bullpen. Um, and it has started to slip. I mean, you look at uh, Cole Gordon's got the highest ER on the team now, 587, and Tristan Barlow's is at just about four and a half. And Plumley and James, two guys you've been kind of shuttling into different starting and relieving roles. Their ERAs are both north of four. And um, so everyone where they it, everyone where they were like a month ago has just kind of slid a little bit. Now, the other side of the sandwich, the, the, the bottom bread of the sandwich, if you will, or the top bread, if you were building from bottom to top, um, is that I think, you know, it feels like they've dodged a little bit of the bu- of a bullet with Ginn, and it seems like Ginn's getting a little bit healthier and a little bit stronger. It's, it's asking a lot for him to return to the form of when I saw him early in the season when he just mowed down a Texas Tech lineup that's really, really good. That's asking a whole lot. Um, but if he continues to get stronger and get a little bit better as the season goes on and gets his feet back under him, I think some of those issues with the bullpen are just going to kind of work themselves out a little bit because you are going to be able to return to being more on schedule from a bullpen standpoint. So I think there is an opportunity for them to right the ship here. I don't think this is uh, any sort of crisis situation, but it is a little bit worrisome that the pitching is just not where we saw it early on, which early on made this look like one of the most balanced, well-balanced teams in college baseball. And the offense is still great, full stop. Offense is great, but the pitching just hasn't quite been there but I think there's the opportunity for it to improve. Yeah, I also think that you know the there there is this other factor that like I you, we they have four games against Ole Miss in the next few weeks, and most teams that would be a very difficult task, especially with three of them being in Oxford. But the last three years, Jake Mangum just doesn't lose to Ole Miss, and you know I, it's hard for me to to look at that. In any in any other context right now, and you know, Ole Miss is also sliding just slightly themselves, and then Mississippi State closes at home against South Carolina. So, I think the next couple weeks are going to be tough, really, really tough. You know, Georgia is no joke, but like Joe's saying, it's not the worst matchup for the Bulldogs for the for the Mississippi State Bulldogs specifically, and then at A and M, it. it I, I still am not entirely sure what to make of AM as a team. You know, they they have very some very significant flaws of their own, uh, but that's going to be a tough series. You know, they're they're in College Station, but the way this sets up for Mississippi State, I feel like they can right the ship. This is a team that has been through a ton. Uh, you know, all of the upperclassmen or a, any of the non freshmen on this team have have been through way worse than this. So I, I think getting swept at Arkansas is is not going to phase them too much. They're going to be ready to go this weekend against Georgia. They're going to be back at home at Duty Noble where they play very well. And it's a big weekend for them. There's no way around that. But 
it, especially if you're talking about being a top eight seed, they, they need to really play well these next three weeks. But I think in the long run, I still feel pretty good about this team. I think they can fix some of their bullpen issues, although ultimately this is a thinner staff. They just need to out-hit their opponents. But this weekend, they did not do that. And if they don't do that, uh, Mississippi State can get themselves into some trouble. And so that's something to watch as as they go down the stretch, particularly into this uh, as they continue this very brutal month that they're part of the SEC schedule that they're in. Now, in the Big 12, Joe, you mentioned Texas Tech on how Mississippi State beat them earlier in the season. Well, Texas Tech starting to write their own ship a little bit here this last week against Baylor. Uh, Baylor came into the weekend leading the Big 12. They had uh, the difficult task of going to Lubbock. They won on Thursday night uh, in a very tight back-and-forth game. Then they lost on Friday night in a similar very tight back-and-forth game that Texas Tech walked off. And then Texas Tech really took it to the Bears on Saturday, uh, run rule shortened game, 13-3 to in seven innings, and the Red Raiders pick up a big series win. We talked last week about how Texas Tech was going to get to play a lot at home over the final month of the season, and they immediately took advantage of that, scoring a, a nice series win against Baylor. Joe, who does that series mean, series result mean more to? Does it mean more to Texas Tech that they won or to Baylor that they lost? I think I think Texas Tech. Um, you know, it hurts Baylor. It's not nobody wants to lose a series, clearly, but I, I think with Baylor hosting for them was always going to be a tough trick to, to, to pull off just because so much of their hosting candidacy, because the RPI is just not quite there. And you knew that they're going to take, they were going to take some lumps in the big 12, because that's, that's first of all, always the nature of the big 12, which is competitive from top to bottom. But this year in particular, um, where things are really condensed. Um, so you knew they weren't going to be perfect down the stretch and their RPI already wasn't in great position. So you knew that a large part of their candidacy to host was going to be winning the league. And just because the league is competitive as it is, that always seemed like they might've been the slight favorite perhaps, but they weren't an overwhelming favorite to do so when they were even leading the league. So I think for tech, it was important because they were, you know, kind of hugging perilously close to that 500 mark in league play. And they, they do get a lot of home games down the stretch, which is helpful but also they had some of the teams you, you know, that, that you would expect them to handle in their rearview mirror. Um, so they get home games, but they're, you know, some of them are difficult home games. So if Tech is going to host, uh, which they are now in much better position to do, having won that series, they're in, you know, in at 15 in the RPI, they're 9-9 nine and nine against RPI top 50. They're now back over 500 fully in uh, Big 12 play at 8-7. and seven. Um, If Tech was going to host, it felt like they kind of needed to get moving in that direction because... I think we kind of, it's one of those deals where I think we all believe in the talent there and we think this is a host quality team when they're playing well, but the metrics needed to catch up a little bit and the records needed to catch up a little bit. And this kind of, um, this kind of helped them get there. Um, I, you know, just as an on-field note on that, it, they really were able to make Baylor look like a team that was thin pitching wise. And, and we know they kind of are because uh, the Cody Bradford injury chief among the reasons. Um, Baylor had done a pretty good job. You know, they've inserted some, Paul Dickens is a guy in the rotation who's done a good job for them kind of being uh, pushed into into duty like that. Um, they've been able to kind of deal with it and play pretty well. And that was, you know, kind of a big story two or three weeks ago, like, Hey, you know, look at Baylor, despite all these injuries, but 
last weekend was really a time where, especially when you got to that finale and, and Texas Tech run ruled Baylor, where you looked up and said, oh, wow, you know, it, I think Texas Tech really did get to Baylor's depth a little bit. Um, and I think that was a big difference there. They made the Bears look like a team that was just a little bit short on the mound. Yeah, I mean, when, when you look at what Texas Tech did, that was kind of what you would expect them to do. Um, and, and their offense really, really impressive over the weekend. They're still searching for it a little bit on the mound themselves, but it was an, it was a good weekend overall for the Red Raiders, and they're looking to string a few more of those together as they uh, – so they look to build out that hosting resume, and they're still in the Big 12 race. Uh, the Big 12 remains a jumbled mess. Uh, but right now, Oklahoma State, by virtue of that Baylor series loss and Oklahoma State's sweep of Texas, moves into first place. Dave, you liked the Cowboys a lot early in the season, uh, or coming into the year, you, you liked the, the, this team's potential. And right now, they're, uh, they're flying pretty high. They're up to where are they in the RPI? They are up to 21 in the RPI, 25 and 13 overall, 10 and 5 in the Big 12. And uh, it seems like the Cowboys are moving in a pretty good direction overall uh, as they head down the stretch, though it is a perilous stretch run for the Cowboys. So, Dave, just what, what are your overall thoughts of, of Oklahoma State and, and how, how you see them navigating a, a difficult final month of the season? First off, yes, I did like them coming into the season, and part of that because I knew they were getting a lot of guys, a lot of pieces back that were injured last year. Then also add to the fact that I have a lot of respect for Josh Holliday and Rob Walton. I think those that duo together have, over the years together, have found a way to, to piece together teams that have been successful towards this time of the year. Um, it's been a weird season for them, though. You know, they started out the season not real well. I'm kind of questioning my own judgment on them. And they've kind of been in and out of our top 25. But then it's, when you look at it, it, towards the tail end of April, they're number one in the Big 12 right now. Uh, as you said, Teddy, they do have a gauntlet ahead of them. They've got weekend series at Texas Tech, at Oregon State, at a conference, and then at home against Oklahoma and Baylor. So I think we're going to find out a lot about them over the next four weeks. But I don't know, you know, again, that up and down kind of season, and not just for the Cowboys, but for many teams around the country, you know, uh, they they ride righted the ship this weekend against Texas, but then Texas looks like a team right now possibly that's spiraling in the wrong way, the wrong direction, that's going to have to turn their ship around in a hurry. But this is an Oklahoma State team that just uh, had a huge blowout victory in a, in a Friday game at Kansas and loses the next two games just the weekend before. So it's kind of hard to figure out, but I think they're starting to piece together enough pitching. Their offense is putting up big numbers uh, like – like I would expect an Oklahoma State team to do, but I think they're going to have to continue to keep doing this because, as you said, as we both have said, the next four weeks are going to determine their fate a lot. And and going back to all our comments, talking about Arkansas, talking about Mississippi State, and now talking about Oklahoma State, you know, the one thing, guys, in my experience over the years, uh, come to postseason, you hear me talk a lot about pitching staffs. And, Joe, you brought up a good point about the matchup of Georgia and Mississippi State, and I agree with you on that. When it gets to this time of the year, even these very good pitching staffs, the pitchers are starting to get a little tired. They've logged a lot of innings. They're starting to get tired. And I, my, over my experience of my career, it's the teams that have had that consistent offense when you get to this time of the season, the tournament time, the postseason, it's the teams, yes, you have to have pitching, but it's the teams that are swinging the bat, putting up the runs that are going to get you through it 
especially the first weekend of the regionals. Because if you get in that loser's bracket, it's about out slugging someone to get back into it and eventually win it. So that's where I think, Joe, your point was well taken is this may be a good matchup for the Mississippi State team this week against Georgia because they're going to put their runs up. They've just got to limit a Georgia team from scoring a lot of runs. And that's where, like I like in Arkansas, as we get deeper in the season, and, and like I talk about Oklahoma State, these are teams that are going to find enough pitching in those weekend series and postseason and then score a lot of runs on against some teams that may not have may not be comparable offensively to them. Yeah, that's uh, that, that is one thing Oklahoma State does pretty well right now is is swing the bats. They've got some nice pieces on the mound, starting with Jensen Elliott, who uh, pitched really really well Thursday night. But that is an offense that has m- many different ways it can hurt you. Before we leave the Big 12, Dave, I also wanted to mention Alec Manoa, another shutout, second straight shutout. He beats Kansas. One to nothing on Saturday, throws a three-hitter, 15 strikeouts again, 31 straight scoreless innings, 41 strikeouts in his last three starts. He's 6-2 and two with a 181 ERA, 95 Ks, 15 walks, and 69 and two-thirds innings. I know we talked about him a little bit last week, and uh, but Dave, just what what is Alec Manoa doing right now that, that has him as the hottest pitcher in the country? Well, it, you know, you kind of stole away from my shout-out because I was going to do it the third week in a row. He's too good fact, for that. <laughs> well, it, it, it's unbelievable his numbers he's put up. And it's kind of, you know, and I'll say this, because of where they're located, you know, out in West Virginia, a lot of people aren't talking about what he's doing over the last three weeks. And you said it perfectly, Teddy, the, over the, the, the numbers he has put up are phenomenal. And I, I turned on the game late in the game. Uh, the, it was a Saturday game because they got rained out Friday. Kansas got second and third in the ninth inning with no outs. And he goes punch out, ground out to short where the guy can score, and then ground out to, to first to end the inning. And then Marcus Inman hits the walk-off home run to win. Just unbelievable by what for what he's doing. And I did a story on him, and I got to talk with him last week. And and in his in my interview with him, it was amazing the the calm that he had about himself. And what he credits it to is he compared to when he was when I was with him in his sophomore year. He said, "Coach, I had all these high expectations. I was supposed to be the guy. I was supposed to be the guy, and I pitched to results every game." And he said, when he started the year against Kennesaw State and Georgia Southern, he was what he was supposed to be. And then when he went to Oregon State and played in Corvallis and had that uh, loss against them in the opener, he said he went back to exactly how he was pitching his sophomore year, and it was about results. He was pitching against the defending national champion. He thought he had to be more than he was supposed to be. He was throwing changes and sliders to the first hitter of the game. He gave Oregon State's offense way too much credit, he thought, and that was no disrespect to them. And he learned, he said, I learned, Coach, out of that game not to ever go back to that again, to just be what I'm doing, win one pitch at a time, my stuff is good enough to beat anyone in the country, throw the ball over the plate, and that's what he's doing. And I thought it was a great answer to my question of what he thought had turned his season around. It wasn't this summer in the Cape like I thought it was, where he developed a, a, a harder slider, a more true slider, by watching videos, he said it was that Oregon State game that has turned his season around to where he's at today. And I thought his his answers to my questions were the maturity he showed was unbelievable on what he's about. And it's about his team. He said, 
I didn't let myself down in the Oregon State game. I let my team down. He said, because if I would have been the Alec Manoa that I had been the first two starts of the year, he said, we win that series. And how big is that for us now? We look back and we win two out of three on the road at Oregon State. So I was very amazed by the, the comments that he made. And it didn't, I was, I didn't say this to him, but I was really waiting to see how he performed against a Kansas team. And, you know, we know Kansas is lower in the standings in the Big 12, but how his mentality stayed the same coming off an Oklahoma State and a Texas Tech team that he dominated, and he did the same thing against Kansas. I mean, that, that's outstanding to hear, you know, just the growth in the season that, that you can realize that what went wrong against Oregon State and then use that and, and, and attack the rest of the year with that. I mean, that, that bodes well for him, not just this season in West Virginia, but as he goes into his professional career to, to have that kind of attitude and, and to learn that kind of lesson um, has to be very helpful uh, as he goes and, and continues uh, his, his baseball career, wherever that takes him next. Now, in the bit, we, we mentioned we had three teams coming in. Uh, we, we've already talked about Oklahoma State. Uh, we'll probably circle back to Tennessee at some point, but we've, uh, we've, we've addressed Tennessee on the podcast before. A team that we have not really talked much about this year is Indiana. Now, the Hoosiers came into the year uh, with some reasonably high expectations, uh, especially in Bloomington, I think, in Jeff Mercer's first season. They returned an awful lot from last year's team, starting with Polly Milto on the mound and, and big-time hitters like Matt Gorski and uh, Matt Lloyd. Um, and, you know, the Hoosiers had an okay start, I suppose. They, they had that tough series at Tennessee when they got swept. But uh, really since then, Indiana's been, been playing a lot better. They're up to 27-13 and 13 overall, 9-3 and three in the Big Ten. Indiana going well in the Big Ten. They, they've already swept Iowa. Uh, they've series wins, uh, you know, in, in the rest of their, their Big Ten series. And... You know, they're, they're looking like a team that certainly is going to compete at the top of the standings the rest of the way. I, I don't know that I'm ready to crown them the Big Ten favorites at, uh, you know, with a month to go. I think when you're looking at teams like Nebraska and Michigan, uh, they're still going to have something to say about that. But Indiana definitely playing very good baseball right now. And as, as they continue to win... They also have improved their RPI. They're, they're up to number 27. And if there's going to be a Big Ten host this year, it looks like it's probably the Hoosiers. And I, I don't think that it's going to happen necessarily. But if IU continues to roll through here, they have some opportunities to further improve that RPI, uh, especially with road series at Illinois and Michigan. And they play a couple of nice midweek games here with, with Kentucky and Louisville. So if IU is able to continue this strong play that they've they've been that this level they've been at for the last month or so, uh, some pretty good things could happen for the Hoosiers. Joe, just where are you at when when you look at the the Big Ten race? Are the Hoosiers have they established themselves as the favorite, or or are they still fighting this out with uh, with a few other teams? Yeah, it's kind of a jumbled mess at the top, uh, which is fun. I mean, that that's what makes kind of the end of the season fun and. And the Big Ten is really a particularly uh, messy league too, because they only take eight teams to their to their conference tournament, which um, they absolutely need to fix. Yeah, I mean, there's it's happened the last several years. Oh, no, I'm I'm with you though. I mean, every year there's a team that gets left out that could have won the thing. 
They need um, to get to 10 teams. They don't need to get to 12. They need to get 10 teams. And I understand that would change the format, that they play a nice, crisp, double elimination, eight-team tournament there in Omaha. That needs to stop. The teams are no longer hurting themselves RPI-wise by taking a 10th team. Although this year I say that, and right now the 10th team would be, uh, you'd have multiple RPIs over 100 in the tournament at that point. But uh, there are too many times the cut line at eight is just leaves the ninth team out, and the ninth team is just as good, especially with the unbalanced Big Ten schedule, which, Joe, I know you want to get into a little bit as well. But I'm now just going back to one of my favorite Big Ten talking points, which is the tournament and it not being big enough. Also, while we're at it, add some divisions, Big Ten, get Wisconsin to add baseball. I'm done. Okay, go go back to it, Joe. That was good. No, that was good stuff. Um, so I'm with you, and you you kind of made the, the you mentioned the unbalanced schedule, and that's to me one of the reasons why expansion makes some sense there because the ninth team might have just played five of the six top teams in the conference, um, while the number eight team might not have. Um, and I guess those are the breaks, and it's a 24 game schedule, so it's you know you know you figure some of that stuff washes out, but still, it, yeah, I, I'm with you in that expansion probably makes um, makes some sense there from a competitive standpoint at least. So, um, but it is a jumbled mess at the top as well. Um, and the, the good news about what the so there's four teams at the top that have really kind of separated themselves at least a little bit, and that's Indiana, Nebraska, 11 and four, Michigan eight and three, and then Iowa at nine and six. Um, and the good news about it is, is we do get a little bit of, of them playing each other. So I'm going to read some stuff off here, so just kind of hang with me. I know it's not great audio, but Indiana's got Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, and Rutgers left. And that's you mentioned it, Teddy. That's really not easy. And, and even Rutgers. Rutgers is sitting at 7-5 and five in the Big Ten. So, I mean, there, there have been years where you kind of look at Rutgers as a series where you can get right a little bit. But Rutgers is competitive there, so um, that's not going to be easy there. Nebraska, meanwhile, has Illinois, Northwestern, and Michigan. Michigan has Rutgers, Maryland, Indiana, Nebraska. And then uh, Iowa's an interesting one for me because those first three teams all kind of have tough go of it. I mean, Michigan's got to go through Indiana, Nebraska. Nebraska has to go through Illinois and Michigan. And then and Indiana's got kind of a gauntlet there as well. But Iowa has Ohio State, Michigan State, and Maryland. Um, so really, it's it's kind of a situation where, you know, because of that, the unbalanced scheduling the rest of the way, Iowa might be in a better position than Nebraska or Michigan just because that's kind of a softer road to get there and it would create kind of an interesting uh postseason case if, if Iowa wins those three series and they win their series against UC Irvine which is in, inserted in the middle of there and their RPI is uh higher than you would expect it to be but they win the Big Ten but maybe not with the most impressive Big Ten record ever what kind of case would that be from an at-large standpoint if you win that league uh, but don't have some of the other metrics there. It's something we really haven't had to grapple with. You know, the Big Ten has improved across the board. And that's been expressed in getting more teams into the field of 64. But we haven't had to really grapple yet with this team won the conference, um, but there are three or four teams below them that have better metrics. Uh, we've kind of been spared of that, you know, like with Minnesota running away with things last year, and we've had some dominant champs in the past. So um, that 2016 would... Minnesota is your closest analog to that yeah and that's they a, got that in right. with like an rpi of 50 as a two seed which was surprising but you don't want to leave that to chance right absolutely so um you know if you're making me pick now i i, I guess i i would pick indiana um just because i i kind of like some of the balance they have there uh they, they are really kind of a, a well-balanced team and if, if you made me go beyond that um gosh i don't it's just it is such, I mean, it sounds like a cop-out, but it really is just such a jumbled mess there at the top, and it's hard to really, 
um, hard to really parse through that. And when we get right down to it, I mean, the, the conference champion is probably going to win the league by a game. Uh, that's really what it's what it's going to come down to. But it, but it's interesting that you know the team that's in fourth right now, Iowa, probably has the the uh, softest schedules to left uh, left to go, and then Indiana arguably has the toughest. So um, that's where the the scheduling ends up mattering a whole lot this time of year. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how that race unfolds over the last month. The Big Ten last year obviously was not close, and that was that was the anom- anomaly. It is usually one of these races that goes down to the the final gun, partially because they just played 24 games, uh, and and it's a little unbalanced as as we've said. So that that leads to uh, some tight finishes seemingly every year. Dave, you uh, earlier this year were at a, were at that Tennessee Indiana series. That feels like a lifetime ago now because it was the second weekend of the year. But at that time, could you have could you see both of those teams? ending up in the top 25, uh, you know, by the end of April. Absolutely. I, I, I thought that when I was at that series, I, I thought these were two teams that, that eventually when the season came close to the end, that they would be teams that would be battling not only for uh, spots within their conferences, uh, but also spots within the postseason. And I think uh, with Indiana, and, and I, I use this excuse a lot about Northern teams, is that, they were probably just out of the out of the gym of, of the indoor facility, you know, with the weather up there. So their bats weren't, you know, it's an experienced team. They've got some experience. They've got some numbers, guys with numbers coming back. But it didn't. It, at that time, it didn't seem like they were clicking. And obviously, Tennessee pitching staff was clicking at that time. So um, it was kind of an unfair evaluation. But you could see the pieces with them um, out there on the field, and and you could see that as 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 their team got more in the flow that they were going to become a good team. Absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, it's been an interesting evolution for them. And, and, you know, they're also at the time where, you know, Jeff Mercer, brand new coach there. And, and so I'm sure that there is some, some growing pains associated with that, just as he got used to the roster and, and kind of figured out where the pieces all fit best and they got used to him. And now they are hitting their stride. They're nine and one in the last 10 and they are into the top 25 at number 25. That is the Hoosiers. I want to just really quickly mention a couple things here with the Pac-12 and the ACC. It was a fun night of Pac-12 baseball on Thursday. There's a little Pac-12 after dark for, for opening night for, for all of the, the series last weekend. But ultimately, Oregon, State, Stanford, UCLA, Arizona State all came out with, with series wins and so the pack, the top of the Pac-12 standings remain much the same as they were going into the weekend. It was an interesting weekend out there in that, uh, you know, Cal really helped their RPI getting a win at UCLA. Jared Horn was excellent on Friday night, pitching into the ninth inning against the Bruins. And, you know, some there, there's been some movement out there. Stanford really hurt Oregon uh, and, and their postseason chances with the sweep in Eugene. Uh, Oregon still looking relatively okay overall, but they're now under 500 in the league. So it was a quieter week in the Pac-12 ultimately, but you know, the, with the top teams mostly humming right along, but some of the underlying things in that league are, are something to watch as, as Cal and Oregon uh, you know, battle out for, for spots in the NCAA tournament and, and spots in the, the Pac-12 standings. I also wanted to mention in the ACC, a couple surprises were... Duke going to Clemson and sweeping a series and Wake Forest beating NC State at home. NC State and Clemson had been two of the top teams in the ACC 
for the first half of the conference season, and now they have both suffered back-to-back series losses, Clemson back-to-back sweeps. Um, it, it's been a rough stretch for the Tigers, but also the Wolfpack uh, not doing so hot over the last few weeks here. And both of those teams have pretty well imperiled their uh, hosting chances. Clemson's are actually probably dead at this point. Uh, NC State's are you know, not, not too much better. And, you know, it, it's it's surprising to see that happen to those teams. But at the same time, the ACC is tough. And, uh, you know, the, they're, neither of those teams has pitched particularly well the last two weekends. And it's very much caught up to them. As for Duke and Wake, those series wins mean that they are back in the postseason picture, especially Duke, I feel like. You know, Duke's up to 50 in RPI. And they're up to 11 and 10 in the ACC. So the Blue Devils are a team to watch. Wake Forest still has a little more RPI work to do. They're at 72. They're also 11 and 10 in the ACC. But that's uh, that's become a lot more interesting over the last couple of weeks. And also Miami made a nice RPI move just by going and winning a game at Louisville. They're up to 14 in the RPI. They're also 11 and 10 in the ACC. So they're probably going to need to improve that to really get into the hosting race. But if they can finish strong, the Hurricanes' RPI is now sitting pretty with regards to hosting. So interesting times in the ACC. Did either of you have anything you wanted to touch on in either the PAC or the uh, the ACC there? I'll say this. It goes back, and I don't mean to sound repetitive, but um, it goes back to what I said uh, last week, that you, when you get to this time of the year and you're in conference, you don't want to get swept. It's it, it's very helpful for the team that sweeps. It's it's very hurtful for the team that that gets swept. And obviously, uh, Clemson Clemson has hurt themselves tremendously after the the back-to-back weekend. And I kind of it goes to show a little bit where in this as we start talk about the start of the year about it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And a lot of times that national champion is determined by what programs are starting to play good baseball now we'll continue it through may and into june and deep into june and i think we're starting to see some teams line up you know some teams are a little confusing because it's up and down weekends but we're starting to see some teams around the whole country not just alone in the acc that are starting to line up and i think we're starting to see some separation a lot of people forget now you know nc state that unbelievable start is kind of is almost forgotten now because of of their latest streak and um, and it's hurtful for them because this is not the time of year. You'd rather start out slow than kind of like Oklahoma state did and finish strong than start out great and then finish slow because it's what it's, you remember what's happening in the, in the most, in the most present. And, and right now some of those teams in the ACC are going the wrong way, whereas they're a Duke and a Wake Forest are going, are turning in the right direction. So I'll get a little bit philosophical with it, and that's I thought about this before, and I think because now there are midweek games, so it's a little bit different. But I think because college baseball is set up more similarly to college football than college basketball. So college basketball has games on Saturdays, you know, sometimes Sunday, but then you have a game on usually Tuesday or Wednesday, and then you're back again on on Saturday. And college football, though, is just for the most part just on Saturday. I think college baseball, because the games are condensed for the most part on the weekends, I think we, that's the royal we, tend to look at them kind of on the college college football sense where a game happens and then because we're not going to have another game or anything of this importance for another week, we have to make sweeping 
sweeping opinions on that team and what happened um, just based on those three games. And I fall into that trap as well, where team wins a series in week one and, oh, what does it mean? And, and you know, we, we kind of draw these conclusions on that. Even if we give caveats like, well, it's still early and yada, 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 it's really an easy thing to do to, to kind of try to draw a conclusion and make meaning of what happened. And I think with Duke and Wake Forest kind of coming back, it's just a, uh, a lesson that, that I need to learn as much as anybody else, just that um, see, you're going to lose series. Everyone is going to lose series. Everyone this season, with the exception, I guess, of you know uh, UCLA and, and Stanford, have had series where they didn't look good at all. I mean, everyone has had that. Um, and so that's just going to happen in a lost series or a slow start is really very rarely, very rarely in these big leagues like the ACC, is it something you can't overcome. Um, if you start playing better in the second half, like because of the nature of the RPI and the league being what it is and the quality of games you're going to get, if you get it going at any point, uh, you know, uh, before late April, you're probably in pretty decent shape. And so but it's certainly better late than never in the ACC. And that's kind of what we're learning with Duke and Wake Forest. And, and don't look now, but, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the ACC was a little bit top heavy, but it kind of feels like now we've got this middle class figured out a little bit where Duke and Wake Forest are coming up, Florida State's playing better, Clemson and NC State are falling back to the pack a little bit. Um, you know, and, and it, there's still some teams like a Virginia, for example, that we kind of talked about as being a field of 64 team that maybe wanted up getting there in the end. But um, there's maybe a little bit more depth in the conference than we were probably giving it credit for just four or five weeks ago. Yeah, it's uh, it, it always seems to shake out that way in the end. You know, the, these these problems, like I, I know, Joe, you've mentioned it before that, you know, the the some of the question marks that you have during the preseason, you know, seem to get papered over in non-conference. And then what do you know, conference play comes around and they get exposed. And that's true at almost any level of team that that's not just the top end teams beating up on lower end teams. That's that that's everyone. It feels like once you get into conference play, once you start playing these teams that know you a little better, they, they know how to find your weaknesses and, and exploit them. And some of that is just that, you know, the season's kind of long and eventually that, that stuff does come creeping back up. And maybe that's what we're seeing a little bit here uh, as, as we get nor towards the end of April with some of these teams. But before, uh, before we get too philosophical here, let's, uh, let's get into our shout outs, uh, that time of the podcast where we, you know, mentioned players, programs that, that we haven't really gone into as much as we'd like to so far and uh, that are deserving of some attention. So Dave, what do you have for us this week? First off, I'd like to congratulate Bill Kinnenberg of Utah winning, uh, getting win number 600 in, the, in a victory on Saturday over Arizona State in a, in a series that obviously uh, was favored to Arizona State, but I think it ended up becoming a, it was a much better series, and I think and Utah had a chance to win that game on Thursday, but he picked up win number 600. Uh, Mike Bianco winning, winning number 737, which puts him fourth on the all-time SEC uh, coaches uh, record list, and he's one away from becoming number tied with number three with the great Ray Tanner. So congratulations to Mike Bianco and his longevity at uh, at Ole Miss. Um, I kind of shied away from it when you brought up Indiana, Tennessee, because I knew that I was going to put a shout out to them. The Vols are now nine and nine in the SEC, 500 for the first time in many many years, an RPI of number eight after the sweep of Kentucky. Um, 30 wins. I think they're, I believe, at 30 and 11. Uh, 
putting together a great resume. I'm really excited not only for the team, but the community, uh, the university, and many of the players that, that I have relationships with that were recruited when I was there. And I spent the, um, my last year, which was many of their first years. I'm really happy for those guys because it's a great group of young men. And obviously they have matured and developed into very good players. And, and I'm very happy for what they're establishing in the 2019 season. And then again, I'll repeat, you stole my thunder, but uh, Alec Manoa, I think he's done something not just this past weekend over the last three weeks, Teddy. And um, I want to give another shout out because what he, the resume he's put together over the last three weeks and throughout the whole season, but the last three weeks are, are tremendous. And not only is he continuing to move up many teams draft boards, or he should be, I think he's putting himself in a category now where he could be a guy that may be able to be talked about as maybe a Golden Spikes finalist or uh, the, the pitcher of the year. He's just putting together something that is pretty special with dominance of of big 12 hitters and hitters around the country. So congratulations to all those. Absolutely. Uh, Joe, what do you got? Well, so I spent this past weekend in Louisville and uh, in that area. It was kind of all around Kentucky and southern Indiana. And um, where I live now in Illinois is kind of on the eastern edge of the central time zone. Um, so it was kind of a, a neat change to be in Louisville where you're on the western edge of the eastern time zone. Um, because it just gets dark way later, um, which is a double-edged sword. It's kind of like Robin Peter to pay Paul a little bit, where it was kind of cool that, you know, when that when the game were, uh, between Miami and Louisville that got suspended in the sixth inning on uh, Friday night got uh, was officially suspended, and it was like almost 8.30, and it was still pretty, pretty light outside. That was kind of nice, but then there's that weird uh, second part of that, which is when you – the sun's been down like all of, I don't know, an hour and a half or two hours. And you're like, is it really that late? That that can't be right. Um, so it was kind of a weird little, uh, time zones are weird, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, also shouts to the Louisville press box snacks, great snack spread. Um, so shout out to that. One other non, non baseball thing. I was at university of, um, Evansville, uh, for their games against, uh, Indiana state yesterday. Um, really enjoyed it. It was a beautiful, uh, afternoon, uh, really enjoyed my time in Evansville. Uh, fascinating school, University of Evansville, just as an institution. First of all, really tucked into the neighborhood they're in to where if the buildings weren't labeled University of Evansville, uh, you might not know it was a university. Part of that is because the school is not that big, as I found out. Um, 2,600 students at University of Evansville. Baseball stuff. Uh, Jake Sanford, Western Kentucky. Uh, we talked about him. He's the, the kid from Nova Scotia who I mentioned when Western Kentucky was really hot earlier in the season. They, as a team, they have cooled off a little bit. Still playing pretty well, but they've cooled off. Uh, but Jake Sanford has not. And he has a chance to be the first ever Triple Crown winner in Conference USA history, um, which sounded surprising to me. But then you, you kind of realized, well, you know, uh, Conference USA has only been around since 1996. And it's kind of had like a shifting membership. So some players you might have thought would have done it. You know, you have to think, well, was that team in Conference USA at the time? So on and so forth. But uh, right now he is hitting 408 with 18 home runs and 55 RBI. He hit two of those home runs while I was there on um, Saturday. So it was very nice of him to do that while I was there so I could see with my own eyes. And boy, that power is real. That is a big, strong kid. Uh, one of them, I just lost the ball. Like I couldn't follow the path of the ball. I mean, it was kind of a gray day. So that's part of it. But, uh, so he's currently leading in all three of those categories and none of them are really all that close right now. Um, you know, he's 27 points up on average. 
He's got seven more home runs than the next highest total, and he's up in RBI by six. Um, so he's really kind of in a good position to do that. Um, so that would be kind of a cool deal for, for him to be the, uh, the first ever in Conference USA. Quickly, we're at, the t- we're at the time of year where midweek games have kind of come into focus, and I know I'm probably the foremost midweek game enthusiast of the three of us on here. But I enjoy midweek games all year long. But now you're really at a point where they start to take some – all the games are equally important. It's something I've talked about. But now we kind of know what the ramifications are. So just a few – uh, real quick, Georgia Tech in Georgia this week at SunTrust Park. Uh, if Georgia Tech wants to continue to build a host resume, I think this is a big one for them. Uh, Nebraska at Creighton, that's always a game that draws a lot of fans. It's kind of a fun atmosphere. Uh, but beyond that, um, Creighton, and I tweeted this, kind of like a stealth host candidate. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but if they were to really, really get hot and finish you know, super strong, um, you know, there's a scenario where that could be something. But certainly winning a game like this is huge. FAU at Florida. Uh, I talked to John McCormick over the weekend because FAU was playing at Western Kentucky, uh, and, and he, he acknowledged the situation they're in. Uh, he thinks their team is good. I think their team is good, uh, but the metrics just haven't quite caught up. Um, they've played a lot of home games. That's been a big part of that. Conference USA maybe isn't as strong in terms of depth. That's part of it, too. Uh, so a midweek game against Florida. You can bet the Gators are going to get FAU's very best shot in this game because they, they know they need these wins. Um, and for evidence of how much they know they need wins, they to, to close out uh, the series against Western Kentucky yesterday, they brought back Blake Sanderson, their Friday starter, to pitch in relief on Sunday. It was a short start on Friday, so it wasn't any sort of abuse situation, but that just tells you how much they felt like they needed that series. Uh, so they know they need it. Uh, UC Irvine taking on Southern Cal. Uh, Southern Cal might not strike you as a major win, but we talked about this a couple weeks ago that UC Irvine doesn't have a lot left on their schedule in front of them. So any games you can get against top 100-ish RPI teams when you're in their position is big. And then uh, UT Arlington playing at A&M. Uh, don't look now, but UT Arlington has kind of elbowed its way into the at-large discussion. Uh, and winning a midweek game against A&M would be a huge step in that direction for the Mavericks. Yeah, we're also in a weird spot with midweek games this time of year because a lot of the Southern schools are just about done with them or they're like, they only have like one or two left and the Northern schools are all like, Oh, this is when we're starting to play them. So uh, just, it's an interesting contrast to this time of year where just depending on what part of country you're in, how, how many midweek games you're, you're dealing with on your schedule right now. I want to mention First of all, I just saw this while we've been recording the podcast. Whoever at Ole Miss is uh, in charge of their, I assume, marketing uh, on social media, they're having, uh, like many schools do, they're having uh, their their annual awards uh, coming up, I guess, tonight. And in promotion of that, they've created some movie posters with uh, some famous movie posters that re- remixed with, with Ole Miss, and we have... Step Brothers with uh, Mike Bianco and Carl Lafferty as uh, as the two Step Brothers, and that picture is phenomenal. So thank you for Carl Lafferty with an afro as John C. Riley. Want to mention Kansas State on consecutive weekends now? Kansas State has won series against Texas and TCU. It's the first time since 2009 that K State has won back-to-back series against ranked teams. And K-State is, has surged in the RPI as a result. They still have a lot of work to do to make the postseason, uh, starting with getting their record, which is 19 and 22, above 500 overall. But uh, regardless of whether or not they're able to, to really continue this surge or not, this has been uh, 
you know, it, it's a, they're showing impressive fight, I guess, under uh, first year coach Pete Hughes and to continue to, to you know, be building on this momentum throughout the second half would, would I think, be uh, significant for the Wildcats, you know, both this season and, and as that program moves forward under under Pete Hughes. Also, Maine on Friday played one of the wilder games that we'll see, certainly the wildest games of the weekend. Uh, Nick Silva, um, Maine's senior right-hander, this is seven in a game. Nick Silva threw a no-hitter, but it wasn't a win until Ryan Terrain, uh, who is a freshman, hit a walk-off pinch-hit grand slam to give Maine a 4-1 win over UMass. Terrain had one RBI to his name before that, but he got the call to pinch hit, and he delivers his first career home run in absolutely unforgettable fashion. Then I also want to mention J.J. Bladet, Vanderbilt's right fielder, who last week hit five home runs. He homered in all four of the Commodores games. Uh, that home run binge, which really dates back to last month, has seen him get into a tie for the national lead. He's up to 20 overall, tied with uh, Tulane's Cody Hosey. So uh, those two guys duking it out in what has become a very exciting uh, national home run race. Arizona State's Hunter Bishop still up in that mix as well. So that's something to watch uh, going forward. Blade also really uh, lifting his his draft ca- draft stock uh, over the last uh, you know several weeks here as, as he continues to hit and and show more power than he has really to this point in his career. Uh, it's a little bit of a Trevor Larnick type season from Blade, which listeners of the Baseball America podcast may remember. Uh, somebody on this podcast, oh, it was me, uh, mentioned way back in the fall um, that that comparison. So, uh, so that brings us to the end of this week's, uh, you know, wrapping up this week's games. Looking ahead, Joe gave you a rundown of some uh, exciting midweek games this weekend. Features uh, Georgia. And Mississippi State, like I mentioned, you know, Creighton and Xavier in an intriguing Big East showdown. And we've got Oklahoma State going to Texas Tech, uh, another big series in the Big 12. We will be back here next week to talk about all of that and more. Um, so you remember to subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite app, and then it'll uh, pop right up into your feed for you. And while you're there, uh, if you have time and the inclination please uh give us a rating and a review um or one or one of one or the other uh they help other people to find the podcast and it helps us uh to know what you guys think of uh of the podcast so if you have time uh just hit that five star button we would greatly appreciate it you can follow us on twitter i am at ted cahill Dave is at Dave Serrano 11 and Joe is at Joe underscore on underscore sports. We will be back here next week, as I mentioned, with the next edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Until then, remember to check everything out over at BaseballAmerica.com. Get all of your college baseball fix throughout the week. There will be a new projected field of 64 on Wednesday. I know everyone is very excited about that this time of year. Uh, and there, there will be plenty of other great stories uh, to, to keep you busy uh, until we are back on the podcast. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours... 
the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.